I'm Steve. And I'm Erica. And we are um, into a series that is kind of about this season in the church's life called Epiphany or Epiphany Tide um, that is looking at how we get to know Jesus. We, we talked earlier at the beginning of the series about why we even need a time to get to re- reacquainted with Jesus year by year. Um, and last time we talked about some of the traditions uh, that are a part of church history, some that are really, really new, like writing words on stars and giving them out, others that are ancient and Latin, um, like uh, house blessings. Where are we going to go today? How are we going to get to know Jesus today, Erica? So we're going to meet Jesus today at the very beginning of his public ministry at his baptism um, by his cousin, John the Baptist. Okay. And when we are calling him John the Baptist, is it because he goes to a church that serves grape juice at communion and dunks people or what, 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 where, where, who, who, who's this guy we're talking about? So no, he doesn't drink grape juice um, or <laughs> he dunks people. I mean, that part is at least is from the imagery that we have yeah, uh-huh. probably true. Um, <laughs> John is known as a baptizer because he's going around in the wilderness baptizing people for repentance of sins. Okay. So, so as we call him John the Baptist or the baptizer, not uh-huh. John the Baptist, is it like that church down the road? Okay. That's so. grape juice and dunking. Gotcha. Got it. So it's not like there's some Christians who are Jesus people and then there's the Baptists who are John the Baptist people. No, we're all Jesus people. Got it. Um, but you said something there a second ago about that this figure, John, who appears in all four of the Gospels in the New Testament offered some kind of ritual that appears to have involved dunking people in water um, (laughs) in the river, to be clear about it as well. And he did this as a sign of people repent. People would come to him to to repent, right? Before before we get to Jesus showing up, maybe we should talk for a second about what, what is... What does John think he's doing or do other people think that is happening when they would come to him before we even get to Jesus? Because he's going to make it even more complicated. So John is known for strolling around the wilderness in his camel hair and and, um, eating locusts and telling people that they need to repent for the kingdom of God is upon them. Okay. The kingdom of God is coming. And so it's a, it's my understanding, it's a Jewish ritual um, a baptism is a, a cleansing of sin from a person, a ritual so, purity. So John, it sounds like, has either in borrowed or changed or transformed an existing water ritual in Judaism in first in the first century. Is that is that where we're starting? That's my understanding of it. I mean, if I'm being completely heretical with that, someone please correct me because <laughs> I have preached that. <laughs> I, I have some awareness as well, uh, at least from from somewhere in previous education, that at the very least, it's it's got its roots in like the ritual washing of the mikvah that would have been part of yeah. regular Jewish ceremonial mm-hmm. life as well. And that it doesn't, it, we don't get the impression that John invented this thing, hey, come into the water, and we're going to pretend that washes away your sins. John John seems to be pretty clear that mere ritual isn't what God is interested in, in it anyhow, but that this is a symbolic act that maybe is helpful for the person looking to turn over a new leaf or start over or something like that. Yeah, so my understanding is that uh, that there was 
lots of different ritual purification practices throughout Judaism. But in particular, this, this connection with repentance was a thing that the community at Qumran really, really embraced. And that's the community that preserved quite a bit of scripture that was found, um, what we now commonly call the Dead Sea Scrolls that was yeah. found in the like 1980s. And um, so now modern biblical scholars often think that there is a pretty strong connection that John probably spent some time at the community of Qumran. And then that's where he got the, that, that connection between, yes, the ritual purification is like important, but you also need to repent. Like if you just go through the motion, you're just having a bath. Right. Um, what you actually need to do is you need to repent of your sins and you need to turn yourself back towards God. And that the ritual purification is just a symbolic way of rededicating um, and like, you know, it, it, it's that it, it's important. Yeah. But it's important because you repented. Right. Almost like in my mind, um, the the choice for somebody who goes to a 12 step program, the first day you show up at a addiction recovery place and you stand up and you say, hi, my name is such and such and I'm an alcoholic or I'm addicted to drugs or whatever it is. And it's that turning of, I don't want to do this anymore. And it may take me a while before I've worked through all the steps, but it's that sort of public moment of I'm at rock bottom, I'm turning around. And um, so it's, Anybody can theoretically stand up in a you know semicircle of folding chairs and say those words if it's accompanied by the actual commitment to try and change one's pattern of behavior. That can be a pretty profound moment, and often people who are in recovery will you know point back to that as the turning point. You know, the first time they went to a recovery group or whatever, and that's how they mark you know how many years sober, how many months, how many days, whatever. Um, even down to carrying the chip or the coin with how long it's been since I had a drink or or whatever the the addiction was that. It's, it's kind of got something of that feel of a, of a ritual that can become meaningful if it's lived into. You raise a really good point there, Sarah, about the connections maybe between John and the, the group at Qumran in, in ancient Israel, like whose uh, yeah, most, most well-known settlement, I guess you could call it, is, is there on, on the edge of the, the Dead Sea. Um, Maybe for folks who aren't as familiar with that group, they were they're, uh, they're sometimes called a group called the Essenes, and their approach to to practicing their faith was sort of a uh, we will withdraw from all the places that we think are corrupt or sinful or tainted, and they would I mean al- almost like. Um, almost like the, the way the Amish communities in, well, in the, the, the corners of uh, Pennsylvania where Erica and I live, like they're, they're withdrawn communities of sort of self-contained and, you know, you may go into town to interact with people to buy stuff, but like there's a, a intentional we're withdrawing from the rest of the world for a different way of life. Uh, and the Essenes sort of took that up to 11, you know, we're, we're withdrawn and they were convinced when the Messiah came, he was going to come with, you know, angel armies and laser beams out of his head to, you know, blast and destroy the Romans and the corrupt priesthood and everything, you know, all that kind of stuff. So a little angrier than the Amish are maybe. Um, but that kind of sense of being withdrawn and a real clear 
uh, dichotomy between the world, which is sinful and corrupt, and their separate little community. And John, you can hear some of that real sharp difference between the you know righteousness and the the wickedness of the world in John's preaching. But John seems also open to anybody coming to him, like ordinary, regular people who weren't going to go live in a commune by the Dead Sea. You know, we get stories from John, from uh, Luke that, you know, tax collectors and soldiers, all sorts of ordinary people who weren't leaving their jobs came to John asking if they could be a part of this movement and they could repent as well. And John, John seems to open that to them as well, right? Mm-hmm. So John's got this ritual where you come if you're if your life is a mess and you know it and you want to turn around you come to john to repent of your sins and be baptized in the water coming up out of the water like being cleansed that makes sense for most of the people who come to john to be baptized but it presents a problem with the person we're talking about today right so i don't think it does okay a huge part of repenting is turning away from the life you've been living, which presumably is sinful, and turning back to God and back to where God wants you to be or the path that God wants you to be on, which is righteousness. God wants us to be walking on the path of righteousness, to, you know, not be jerks to one another, to not be um, intentionally sinning. And when we find ourselves sinning, when we're not even meaning to be, that we try to make things right again. Um, But it's that turning back to God and turning back to what God wants for us in our lives. And so for Jesus, I think that we could argue that this is the moment that God turns or Jesus turns to God and embraces that path that God wants Jesus to be on, which is the path to the cross. That this is a turning point in Jesus's life where Jesus starts Jesus's ministry and starts doing those things that God put him here on earth to do. So it sounds like you're suggesting there's an inflection point for Jesus, even if it's not a 180 degree turnaround. I mean, like there were some people who came to John who were, I cheated from my neighbors and I took advantage of them and I pilfered and I robbed and all that kind of thing. And I don't want to do that anymore. And they'd come to John and that was a moment for them of I'm leaving a bad, sinful, wicked life. We don't get the sense from the gospel writers that Jesus has a long list of sins to uh, atone for the opposite, but that Jesus, you could say, uses this as a moment of I'm, I'm choosing a particular path and it's the one I'm convinced God is, is that the father is calling me to. Is that, that, that kind of thing? That's what I think. Yes. Okay. Okay. How, do, how does that hit with, with your traditions, understanding or, or take on it, Erica? Um, I can't say I, I disagree. Um, I've always, I don't know that my tradition necessarily holds um, something very specific to this moment. Wesley doesn't have a s- systematic theology sure. like Luther did or Calvin or others did. Um, so I've always viewed it more so, and this is typically how I preached it. Um, but so you give, you've given me something to ponder here. Um, more so is like Jesus is setting an example for what he wants us as a church to continue to do beyond his ministry here on earth. The idea of baptizing believers. Um, And in in my tradition, we baptize infants and that's a Mm -hmm. whole other story that maybe for another day. 
Um, but the I, but the sacrament of baptism, the act of baptism, is something that the church is going to carry on, mm-hmm. whether that be adults, infants, or anyone in between, sprinkled, dunked. However, sure. again, that's another yeah. argument for another day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's, a, and and this might be one of those places where we don't end up having to pick one take or the other, but to say that there's a richness to what's going on, going on certainly the later church would use the example of Jesus having been baptized as part of why we continue that ongoing practice. So there's certainly a sense the New Testament uses of that example sense. And that idea, that idea of this being a, a turning point or inflection point for Jesus, I think is borne out to be sure in that right after this, and we'll talk about this in another episode, uh, after Jesus is baptized, he's driven into the wilderness for a sort of a showdown with uh, the evil one, with the devil, with, with Satan, and there's a clear no, I'm not going to take that path. I am going to take the path that God has, has set me on kind of a, a sense of that, that, that idea of a choice in Jesus' mind of not one thing, but choosing another, that, that makes sense too. I've, I've also uh, heard the, the take, and again, I don't know that it's mutually exclusive with the others, but that this is a, an act of solidarity on Jesus' part. Um, that like, if part of what Jesus has come to be is to identify with a world full of mess ups, it's Jesus getting in line saying, I'm throwing my lot with them. It's almost like a reverse Spartacus. You know, that, that famous scene in the movie Spartacus, where, um, the, you know, I haven't seen Spartacus. Oh, this is, no. this is one of those things that's absolutely worth seeing just for this scene, but it's been out for, I don't know, 60 years. So spoiler alert. Um, it's, it's a, it's a, uh, about a, a slave rebellion in the first century in the days of the Roman Empire. And uh, Spartacus has liberated a whole bunch of other uh, slaves and they like uh, are this sort of roaming band of escaped slaves in the wilderness. And at some point the Romans catch them and corner them and they've got them all surrounded. And the Romans uh, say, um, we just want the ringleader. Which one of you is Spartacus? We're going to kill him. And Spartacus is about to stand up and then one by one, people from out the crowd go, I'm Spartacus, I'm Spartacus, until everybody's standing up shouting, I'm Spartacus, as if to say, if you're going to take him, you got to take me as well. Um, so like, I often picture that Jesus' baptism is the reverse Spartacus moment. It's Jesus saying for a whole world full of us, I'm with them. Um, so throw, you know, I throw my lot in with them, mess ups that they are, I'll, I'll, I'll be counted among them uh, as well. That's, it's, it's, uh, again, to me, uh, a connection to what what eventually the cross is about as well. Less about Jesus having to pay some imaginary debt, but to say, "I'll, I'll, I'm, 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 I'm with them. I'll, I'll, I'll count myself as among the sinners, and I'll, I'll bear what would have been theirs, uh, or I'll throw my lot in with them." But uh, again, all I don't know that any one of these is the only take one can have. No, I don't think so, because I definitely agree with Erica that. There, there is something to Jesus being baptized that connects us with our baptism to Jesus, right? And we wouldn't have that without Jesus being baptized. If Jesus was all like, oh, that's such a cool thing you're doing, John. It's not for me, but <laughs> right. it's cool. um, hey, everybody else, you should do this thing. It's cool that John's doing like, no, Jesus didn't like just recommend it, mm-hmm. but rather Jesus did it right and right, right. therefore it's not so much a recommendation but like a, you know th- this is something that we do that yeah. we we are baptized and just like jesus is baptized and claimed by god you know god says you know either you are my son or this is my son the beloved with whom i am well pleased uh 
so God claims us in our baptism, right? Yeah. That God calls us beloved child in our baptism too. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's beautiful. I think that's an important piece that maybe helps us see at, at the, there's a turning point where Jesus baptized that baptism comes to mean something maybe different or more or fuller in the new Testament for the Christian community than John intended. Like John doesn't seem to say when you come to him, uh, come to be baptized so that you can hear a voice say that you're claimed or beloved by God. But Christians make that claim now in, in part because of what happens with Jesus and that, um, later writers of the New Testament will say things like at baptism, it's this moment of being adopted by God or claimed by God or being brought into the family, as well as New Testament writers will talk about baptism for us, like being joined to Jesus' death and resurrection. Certainly John the baptizer is not thinking along any of those lines. Um, but for, for Christian tradition now, it's become this sense of, it's not just a water ritual of, I'm sorry for being a bad person, I want to be nice now, but somehow being joined to Jesus' because he went through this as well maybe maybe this would be a time then for us to to spend a little more time in detail talking about some of those um uh particulars of the story about when jesus is baptized because you you gave a mention there sarah to there's a voice that comes from heaven and speaks something to jesus and a number of the gospels give us some version of something like that right yes so like because we have this story in all four gospels there's going to be some differences and that's primarily because the, the gospel writers had different agendas and different audiences. Um, But what we can know is that there was a voice from heaven, which I think we can just safely presume is God, the father, (laughs) like safe assumption. I think that's what we're supposed to take from that. Yeah. Right. And that the voice claims Jesus by name as beloved son um, and that God is well pleased. Um, And the differences are often who hears this voice? Mm -hmm. Is it just Jesus or is it the crowd? Um, And often you can uh, make good educated guesses based off of who the voice is addressing you know, and some of them, it's you are my son, in which case I think we can assume that we're supposed to think that just Jesus is hearing the voice. Um, but then others is this is my son. And one of them even says, or I'm not now, now I'm second guessing myself is if this is baptism or the transfiguration where the voice says, this is my son, listen to him. Like That's there's a, an additional commandment there. Yeah. That's definitely at the transfiguration. Uh, it may it may or may not also appear in a baptism version, but like uh, fresh in my mind is Luke's telling where at Jesus' baptism, the voice is in the second person, you are my son. But when we get to the transfiguration on the mountain, the voice says, this is my son, the chosen, listen to him. So there's a change maybe, even if there's a connection. I think that that's an important thing to note that for sure, Matthew, Mark, and Luke want us to make that connection that this voice at Jesus' baptism then sort of, appears again and is heard again at that next sort of turning point right before Jesus begins really clearly headed toward the cross. So there, there's this voice that claims Jesus. The language is pretty constant about you are my son, you are beloved, that kind of thing. Um, uh, whether it's second person or third person, that, that identity is, is given. W- other details about what happens in this moment. 
Yeah, the, the, the Holy Spirit descends down on Jesus in a bodily form of a bird. Yeah, that's that that's weird. <laughs> like, I mean, like it's it's very specific, and, yeah. and it's 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 also odd. Like the breath of God is descending upon Jesus, and again, there is some question as to who can see this bodily manifestation of God's breath, God's spirit. Right, right. Is it just Jesus, or is the whole crowd going, "What on earth is that?" Right, right, and because. I just imagine a giant dove, right? Like it can't be a normal sized dove or if it is normal sized, then it probably is glowing or something. Like there's no way that it's just a plain bird that looks like any other bird. Like surely there's something different going on. So this this is a good question. How would one know? Because like prior to this, there is no talk in, not, certainly not in the Gospels or in the, the Hebrew scriptures of, you'll always know the presence of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit will show up as a bird. Like, no, you, you, you named earlier, more frequently God's Spirit is talked about like wind or breath or, you know, like, like the motion of air, something by, by nature invisible that you can feel the effects of or see what it does, but you can't um can't you know see it and yet here the gospel writers like and here's the holy spirit and the holy spirit shows up like a bird okay (laughs) um and and something had to be distinctive for anybody watching or for the gospel writer to say this wasn't just any bird this was the holy spirit um but even what what that was, I mean, good question. Art, artists sometimes picture the bird has a halo around it, or there's a sunbeam of light coming around it, or make it pure white or something like that. Um, but what, what, whether it was or wasn't, that's sort of our guessing. How, how would you know? I mean, the, the same way that, that lots of artists throughout history put a halo around Jesus, you can identify which bearded person in a robe is Jesus, because they all are. Well, this one is Jesus. He's got the halo. He's got the nimbus around his head. But people didn't necessarily think that Jesus walked around with a halo around. I think something like that. Somehow, everybody knew, but nobody gives us real clear details on how you would know which that, that this bird was different. Yeah, it, it's it's almost like a throwaway line, like because it's just so casually mentioned with no big detail. And, and I think that that's because that's not the main piece of the story. Sure. And I think we could very quickly make it the main piece of the story because like this really weird thing happened. A giant bird landed on this guy's (laughs) head and didn't poop on him, just landed there and then spoke and uh, the heavens were opened up. And it's, it's one of those things that I think that that moment, that snapshot we could probably spend pages upon pages describing because it was probably a big deal. It was probably really cool, probably something really out of the ordinary, but yet that's not the thing to focus on. Yeah. You know, the thing to focus on is what that voice is telling us, which is this guy who was just baptized is God's son and Mm -hmm. he is beloved and he is like God is well pleased with him. And even that isn't like the big, big thing about Jesus's life, right? Like that's coming down the road on right. uh, Good Friday and Easter morning. Right. It's, it does seem though, like uh, kind of as you're hinting that 
the, the gospel writers use details in this moment to help us later on make connections about those other central pieces of who Jesus is. So like there's definitely a connection between Jesus' baptism and the voice when he's up on the mountain and transfigured. And I, I even think at least Mark in the among the gospel writers is dropping some hints on um, what's going to happen at the cross. John or Mark uses this really, really distinct language, and he talks about the heavens being torn apart. It's it's a violent verb in the Greek. Um, Luke is a little calmer. The heavens were opened. You know, almost was like a cloud passed by. But like, but Mark is violent. It's this word for torn, ripped open, and it's the same imagery, the same language as when the temple curtain is torn apart, uh, which traditionally says may have had the imagery of the heavens or the stars or the planets woven into the, the 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 design of the tapestry in that curtain in the temple as well but that imagery of whatever barrier there has been between god and humanity is ripped apart and here's this moment of glimpsing it that that uh, we'll come to again later at the cross and resurrection it seems like the gospel writers are each trying to give us a way of connecting this start of jesus ministry with what's coming down the road just thinking about this listening to you all the descending of the spirit we know in the gospels when the spirit descends on jesus it's in the bodily form of a dove is there a connection to that in pentecost where the spirit descends upon the disciples now that's not a dove in that moment right it's tongues of fire but it's still like descending and resting upon their heads much like the dove is described as resting upon jesus I, I definitely think that part, of, that part of what makes this moment different for Jesus compared with anybody else, John the baptized or baptized, is that this is a moment where the Holy Spirit is present uh, in a way that, again, like John wasn't advertising, come to me out in the water and I'll give you the Holy Spirit. John, in fact, makes the point, somebody more powerful than I is coming, he'll baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit. And again, Pentecost is sort of a, oh, there it is. There's fire in the Holy Spirit. Um, but that that the, the early Christian community, when they thought about what it meant to be baptized or to be a follower of Jesus, they they talked about it like it was more than just we're people who believe certain facts about the historical Jesus. They were convinced that we are indwelt somehow by the spirit of God, the, that God's own presence resides among us or within us. And that, yeah, that that's part of a distinctive uh, about being a Christian different from say being part of a historical society, people who just like to study a particular era or person in history. Yeah. I think that that's a good connection there. Yeah. Um, I think it's probably fair to say too, although maybe later Christian theologians have made more out of this and maybe the first century writers of the gospels uh, have that this is sort of a moment of Trinity as well. That like, you know, what we've talked before, the gospel writers don't come out and use the word Trinity. Later Christian history said, how do we talk about God being one and three at the same time? And we invented this word to describe that, but it does seem significant that you get gospel writers going out of their way to emphasize the voice from heaven is God, the father, we've got Jesus, the son, we've got the, the spirit that in this moment, the full of God, all three persons, so to speak, are there as well. Even, even if they don't make a lot of hay out of that, uh, like like Sarah was saying, the, the the gospel writers don't seem to make that the focal point, but it does seem a detail that um, we might note along the way. And is there any other place in scripture that we see this quite as clearly, you know, the three persons of the Trinity all in one space at one time than we do at the baptism of Jesus? Um. In, in this explicit a term, I, I'm, I'm hard pressed. I think the, the biblical writers, 
especially the way John tells uh, the, the creation at the beginning of John 1. I think you could say creation is another one of those moments that classically Christians have said the Bible talks about the all three persons being present and genesis itself gives those kind of like hints about you know the god when god created the heavens and the earth the wind from god or the spirit of god broods over the waters and uh john used that language of the logos that christ the, the second person of the trinity being there in the act of creation as well but you're right there's not a whole lot of other places where it gets just that clear and explicit i mean jesus often will talk about the spirit and we'll talk about the father all in the same right time you know in the same what we would say the paragraphs you know right scriptures but i don't think explicitly and even with the genesis story i sometimes wonder if that's us taking our christian view right and pasting it back on genesis one sure sure a view that was not necessarily there for the jewish readers right of genesis right 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 i think it's fair to say like by the time you get john one John has envisioning all part, all the persons of God being involved in creation. But yeah, that's a decidedly Christian move. And what uh, a first century Jewish person might have understood the Ruach of God doing at creation, they might have just said, you know, the Ruach of God was there, you know. Um, but yeah, that, it's, there, there's, not, there's not a full-blown Trinitarianism there like there is in this story, sure. And you get a couple of moments where... Uh, Jesus will be present and will uh, speak to the disciples about receiving the Holy Spirit, but you don't get the voice from the first person of the Trinity there. Like, mm-hmm. And in uh, the end of John's gospel, Jesus breathes on the disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. So, okay, Holy Spirit's there and Jesus is there, but you don't get a voice as clearly as, as here. So, yeah, this is a unique moment in that regard. Yeah. And Jesus talks about the Father sending the Spirit. Right. But again, you don't hear the voice yeah. of the Father in the yeah. midst of that. Um, like you do here so this is a very unique yeah and so where we get that idea of trinity from i i think almost to, to to go back to sarah's point earlier that we could uh wax theological for a long long time about teasing out all the nuances of what might else be going here but as far as the gospel writers are concerned they seem to all use this moment to introduce us to jesus and say everything else from here on out is the intentional chosen agenda of Jesus who's trying to live out what the kingdom of God or the reign of God looks like. And maybe everything up to this point, you know, we, we talked before about uh, Jesus as a 12 year old in the temple and about how clear a picture does he have of who he is at that point. Some idea, but is it full fleshed out? We don't know. But like, it's almost like here at this point, this is public Jesus. This at this point, um, Jesus is stepping into a particular way of life and is choosing not to do other things. He, he, you know, is giving up the life where he could have had 2.5 kids and a white picket fence and a comfortable, quiet life, you know, never making any uh, trouble. No, he's instead chosen this way of life, being a wandering, itinerant, homeless rabbi, healing and raising the dead and getting into trouble. And that this, that all starts here. I find it interesting that Jesus's ministry doesn't start necessarily with Jesus saying anything. Yeah. You know, but rather doing something. Sure. Um, you know, yes, we have in in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, like his first public sermon and, and things like that, but it doesn't, it doesn't start with speaking. It starts with doing. Or, or so even unlike res- my calling, and I'm sure maybe yours as well, like you know, our callings today don't tend to start with doing something so much as like, 
saying, you know, we, we practice preaching, we do other things. Um, but Jesus goes right into doing something before he ever preaches a word. And, and I'm not even like, this might be splitting hairs, but it doesn't even seem like what Jesus is doing. It's what's being done yeah. to him, right? Like he's not performing the baptism. He's being baptized. Um, he's not giving any major spe- uh, speeches or sermons or anything, but yet there's a voice from heaven claiming mm-hmm. him and naming him. Um, and, and like, again, I think that this is splitting hairs a little bit because it's not like anybody was forcing him to be baptized. It's not like he was a baby with no, um, no agency. He stepped into the water himself. He, he did whatever the ritual purification was to repent um, you know, like he certainly did things, but also baptism is just as much something done to you. And in that regard, it's almost like this all starts with his identity, his being as God's chosen, as God's beloved. And then everything else is flowing out of recognizing or trusting that declaration about who and whose he is. Maybe I should have said to clarify that Jesus started with action versus words. Yeah. And, and I think that's also a really cool distinction because, and, and that might just be because uh, in 21st century America, Christianity, um, we, we tend to do a lot of all oh, the thoughts and prayers. Like, I'm so sorry to hear about this disaster that has affected you and yours and your community. Um, our thoughts and prayers are with you. You know, we, we are more likely to do that than to actually take action to help our fellow brothers and sisters and siblings in Christ. Um, you, you know, like we tend to be a lot more heady, like yeah. thinking and saying stuff than we are doing actions. And I know that's just most, that's a lot of just American Christianity right now, but I think that's a very good thing to pay attention to. And I think one of the especially uh, dangerous things about um, a moment in history that relies so much on words is how cheap talk can be in a way that actions like, you know, that you, 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 you spend a certain amount of energy, effort, resource and whatever in taking action, whereas we live in a time when you can, you know, put an angry meme up on your social media feed and feel like you've changed the world. Now you have, you've done nothing but, you know, click a button uh, and that Jesus choice to take actions that, that embody what the reign of God looks like. It's costlier. It's, it's, it's uh, you can't, you can't backtrack that as well as, you know, when a, when a, a politician makes a speech and then it doesn't play well, they, you know, send out the, the PR person to say, well, it's not, that's not really what I meant, but Jesus doesn't do that. Instead that Jesus sort of throws himself into, this is my identity. This is the, the path I'm going to walk. Uh, this is the way of life I'm choosing. Yeah, I think that's, that's maybe a word we need to hear in our time. So in fact, we're going to spend the next several episodes taking a look at other ways that the gospel writers help us in this season of Epiphany to get to know who Jesus is better. I mean, baptism has gotten our attention. Okay, loud voice from heaven, clearly pay attention to this guy. This is God's son. But what does he have to say? Who is he? What is he doing and not doing? Those are things that we'll be looking at in future episodes. Uh, So we hope you join us here as we keep getting to know Jesus again for the first time here on Crazy Faith Talk. See you all. Bye.